Reflections on Dante's Divine Comedy, The Inferno, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 11. So here's the transformation. As I kept my eyes upon those centers, a serpent with six feet springs out against one of the three, clutches him completely. It gripped his belly with its middle feet and with its forefeet grappled his two arms, and then it sank its teeth into both cheeks. It stretched its rear feet out along his thighs and ran its tail along between the two, then straightened it out again behind his loins. No ivy ever gripped a tree so fast as when that horrifying monster clasped and intertwined the other's limbs with its. Then just as if their substance were warm wax, they stuck together and they mixed their colors, so neither seemed what he had been before, just as when papers kindled, where it still has not caught flame in full, its colors dark, though not yet black, while white is dying off. The other two souls stared, and each one cried, Ah, me, Agnello, how you change! Just see, you are already neither two nor one. Then two heads were already joined in one, when in one face, where two had been dissolved, two intermingled shapes appeared to us. Two arms came into being from four lengths, the thighs and legs, the belly and the chest became such limbs as never had been seen, and every former shape was cancelled there. That perverse image seemed to share in both and none, and so slowly it moved on. Eerie transformation, followed by one that's even stranger. Just as the lizard, when it darts from hedge to hedge beneath the dog day's giant lash, seems, if it crosses, if it crosses one's path, a lightning flash, so seemed the blazing little serpent moving against the bellies of the other two, as black and livid as a peppercorn. Attacking one of them, it pierced right through the part we, where we first take our nourishment, the navel. And then it fell before him at full length. The one it had transfixed, excuse me, the one it had transfixed stared, but said nothing. In fact, he only stood his ground and yawned as one whom sleep or fever has undone. To me, there's something very amazing about that staring and yawning. And the, and the slippage of the soul from one to the other begins. The serpent stared at him, he at the serpent. One through his wound and the other through his mouth were smoking violently, their smoke met. And Dante pauses long enough to pride himself on what he's about to do and to say that Lucan and Ovid never did anything like that. These were the ways they answered to each other. The, serpents, the serpent split its tail into a fork. The wounded sinner drew his steps together. The legs and then the thighs along with them so fastened to each other, to each other that the juncture soon left no sign that was discernible. Meanwhile, the cleft tail took upon itself the form the other gradually lost, and so on and so forth. They began to exchange shapes with one another. And I'll skip around here. The one rose up, the other fell, and yet they never turned aside their impious eye lamps, watching each other all the time. Now, the conclusion. Where does this process begin? Uh, and where does it end? They strike each other in the navel. They, he's, they're, they're stricken in the navel, bitten in the navel. They look and the smoke comes out, the transformation begins. The culmination of it is the tongue. 
very important for Dante because of what the tongue means to him. So here's the final part of that bizarre mock transformation. His tongue, which had before been whole and fit for speech, now cleaves. He speaks with a forked tongue. Huh? Now this, by the way, is no small matter for Dante. Remember the trouble he had when he had to ride the monster of fraud or the monster of fiction to get at truth? And now Dante is realizing that the last transformation is one that splits the tongue and makes it lying, makes it a lying tongue. His tongue, which had before been whole and fit for speech, now cleaves. The other's tongue, which had been forked, now closes up, and the smoke stops. The soul that had become an animal, now hissing, hurried off along the valley. The other one behind him speaks and spits. Language. And Dante sums the whole thing up by saying, and so I saw the seventh ballast, the, that part of hell, change and rechange. The Italian is mutare e trasmutare. No transformation. I saw it change and rechange. Change and change and change and change and no transformation. The perversion of the transformation. It is an attempt to change outwardly, which is a parody or a perversion of the need for an inner transformation. And this thing about the tongue, I think, is sets us up for what's going to happen uh, in part in Canto the 26. First of all, he begins by uh, exclaiming against Florence. Be joyous, uh, mocking Florence. Be joyous, Florence. You are, you are great indeed, for over sea and land you beat your wings through every part of hell your name extends. Now he's when we, we have to know how to relate to Florence. Florence is simply the culture world. Florence is not Florence, Italy, early 14th century. To read uh, the Divine Comedy properly, Florence is the culture world that is perverted by history as usual. And uh, Dante is exclaiming against it. And this, one of the problems with Florence is that they either have no wise elders or they do not listen to them. Because in Canto 26, he's going to, to be talking about the evil counselors. These are people who are, who are in the position to be wise elders. And they use that position uh, wrongly. And they lead others to perdition. They lead others into 
sin and suffering and death because they counsel in an evil way instead of a wise way. So Florence, if, if we are with Dante here, now we have to substitute for Florence what? America? He says of Florence, you are great indeed for over sea and land you beat your wing. Florence needed a wise elder who could say things that people didn't want to hear. Uh, Toynbee was a wise elder. Just to make a connection with the modern Florence, Toynbee said, military expansion is normally a result of militarism, which is itself a symptom of decline. Nobody wants to hear that. What they want to hear is that it's, that it's America standing tall again. So we put it in a, some kind of context there. And Dante says, it's going to go hard on Florence. And then he says, as I grow older, it will be more heavy, the consequence of this perversion in Florence. It's interesting that Dante notes that he is growing older because it's really the elders that we're looking at in Canto 26. And Dante is in a position to be a wise elder, only he's been exiled. As I grow older, it will grow worse. One of the implications of that is that you have cut yourself off from, from those who have the wisdom to set things straight. Uh, you know, everybody who does, uh, who writes a book on or does a course on or whatever else, the, this thing called the midlife crisis, they always make, they always insert the obligatory reference to the Canto One of the Inferno. I found, the first few lines, I found, found myself lost in a dark wood Half my life, half our life's way, and so on and so forth. The whole of the Divine Comedy is could be seen as that great, that great watershed transformation between the first, what Jung called the first and second half of life. But I think in the Inferno, uh, it's Canto Twenty Six more than more than even Canto One, where that is being dealt with. Wise counselors ought to be those who are willing and able. Uh, to say things that may be bewildering to those who are totally preoccupied in ego formation uh, and ego building. And uh, so that there's a lot in this canto that has to do with the first and second half of life. And Dante sobers up. He has just shown off his, his, his uh, poetic uh, virtuosity. And then he says, and more than usual, I curb my talent, that it not run where virtue does not guide, so that if my or something better has given me that gift, I not abuse it. It's kind of an examination of conscience here. Now, there are t many sources for this, but I'll, I'll cite two for Dante, uh, one from the uh, classical literature, uh, Cicero, and the other from the, from the Bible, the Epistle of James. And they have to do with uh, the caution that, uh, shall we say, great communicators ought to exhibit. Those who have the capacity to, um, uh, to convince they have to be awfully careful. Here's what Cicero said, and Dante read this. Uh, Dante was familiar with this uh, part of Cicero's writing. 
when a certain agreeableness of manner acquired the power of eloquence unaccompanied by any consideration of moral duty, then low cunning supported by talent grew accustomed to corrupting cities and undermining the lives of men. In the, God, in the epistle of James, James says, this pinches a little bit here, but I'll read it. Only a few of you, my brothers, should be teachers, bearing in mind that those of us who teach can expect a stricter judgment. Gulp. So, so is the tongue only a tiny part of the body, but it can proudly claim that it does great things. Think how small a flame can set fire to a huge forest. One thinks of those little speeches of Hitler's. The tongue is a flame like that. Among all the parts of the body, the tongue is a whole wicked world in itself. It infects the whole body, catching fire itself from hell. It sets fire to the whole wheel of creation. Wild animals and birds, reptiles and fish can all be tamed by man, and often are, but nobody can tame the tongue. It is a pest that you will not keep still, full of deadly poison. We use it to bless the Lord and Father, but we also use it to curse men who are made in God's image. So anyway, there's this thing about the tongue, and Dante is very concerned about that. Um, so Dante enters this realm of the evil counselors who have used the tongue poorly, who have been in positions of, of uh, wise elders and who have not behaved accordingly, and he uses right away the simile and this, uh, of, um, of Elijah. He says, so many were the flames that glittered in the eighth abyss. I made this out as soon as I had come to see come to where one sees the bottom. Even as he who was avenged by bears, he's talking about Elisha, saw as it left Elijah's chariot, its horses rearing, rising right to heaven, when he could not keep track of it except by watching one lone flame in its ascent, just like a little cloud that climbs on high, so it was when he looked down and he saw all these little flames down there. Well, he uses this image taken from Second Kings of uh, Elijah being carried off in a flaming chariot to heaven and Elisha on the ground and Elisha said ask Elijah for a double portion of his of his spirit and Elijah said you can have it if you see me when I depart there's we could spend some time on that it's a marvelous psychological insight but the point is I think having to do with this evidence one leaves behind here is Elijah Elisha who is left looking up and wondering. And, and that is what this flame is all about. Uh, you know, the eternal torch, passing the flame, passing the mantle on. Elijah made a flame on his departure. Let's put it this way. Elijah's departure involved a flame. But it was the flame, the purpose of the flame was Elisha and the people left behind. The purpose of the flame was not Elijah. You see, it was not his immortality project. It was not him building something that would keep him famous. The purpose of it was those who were left behind. Uh, and you'll, you may, if you keep that in mind, you'll hear the, the perversion of that in, in Ulysses. 
Dante says, I stood upon the ridge and leaned straight out to sea, and if I had not gripped a rock, I should have fallen off without a push. That's Dante saying, mea culpa. Mea culpa. My, my fault. Yes, I know about this. I could easily fall into this one. I could easily fall into this one. And how does he prevent himself from falling into it? By grabbing hold of a rock. The rock of age, it says. That's how one keeps from falling into it. So I want to we'll spend some time on Ulysses. Ulysses, you see, is, by Greek uh, standards, Ulysses is a great hero. And Homer's Odyssey, Ulysses is the Latin name for Odysseus. Homer's Odyssey is the great story of the journey of Ulysses, or, or Odysseus, uh, the journey home after the Trojan War. And he's a man of great ingenuity and cunning and, and courage and resourcefulness and all that. From the Roman point of view, from the Latin point of view, Odysseus is, um, is the personification of deceit and guile. Odysseus is the one that concocted the idea of the, of the Trojan horse. And so um, the, way, the way Homer left it, Odysseus gets home to uh, Ithaca, and he uh, there's a kind of an awkward hint of some kind of settling down, but it's not very well done. It's as though Homer didn't quite know how to end the poem. Odysseus is... Uh, is a uh, inveterate roamer, and uh, he gets home. And you know, how do you end the poem, really? And uh, it, it doesn't. It isn't doesn't end very well. And so Dante writes the end to it, which uh, is not terribly flattering to to uh, Odysseus or Ulysses. Virgil tells Dante again. This is all part of Dante's learning. Virgil says. Refrain from talking. Well, the Latin is, don't use your lingua, your tongue. And just before, when they ask uh, uh, Ulysses to speak, it says, line 88, and then he waved his flame tip back and forth as if it were a tongue that tried to speak. So there's an awful lot of talk here about the proper use of the tongue. And Ulysses is one being punished for the improper use of it. So here's the story, and then we'll take some time to explore it. This is Ulysses speaking. When I had sailed from Circe, who'd beguiled me to stay more than a year there, near Gaeta, where Aeneas gave that place a name, before Aeneas gave that place a name, neither my fondness for my son, nor pity for my old father, nor the love I owed Penelope, which would have gladdened her, was able to defeat in me the longing I had to gain experience of the world and of the vices and worth of men. None of those things of home, none of those fundamental relationships, fondness for my son, pity for my father, the love I owed to my wife, none of that could defeat in me the longing to gain experience. What's translated here, longing, is the word adore, ardore, ardor, which means to flame with desire. 
and he is caught in a flame. He spends eternity encased in a flame. Therefore I set out on the open sea with, what, with but one ship in that small company of those who never had deserted me. There is no sense of his loyalty to them. He measures them by the fact that they have not deserted him. I saw as far as Spain, as far as Morocco, along both shores. I saw Sardinia and saw the other islands, that sea bays. And I and my companions were already old and slow. When we approached the narrows where Hercules set up his boundary stone, stone that's the Straits of Gibraltar, that men might heed and never reach beyond. We were old and slow when we approached the narrows where Hercules set up his boundary stones. Hercules is the great hero. He is the personification of heroism. The heroism, that, the kind of heroism that belongs to the first half of life. They were old and slow when they reached the boundary of Hercules, the limits of the heroism appropriate to the first half of life. And they ignored the boundary. And they tried to carry on that hero project from the first half of life into the second half of life. And this is the great, this is what makes fools out of people. This is what turns otherwise nice, decent people into fools. So he goes on. Upon my right, I had gone past Seville, and on my left, already past Ceuta. Brothers, I said, O oh, you who, having crossed a hundred thousand dangers, reached the West to this brief waking time still, that still is left unto our senses. You must not deny experience of that which lies beyond the sun. Now, this is swelling to great Wagnerian themes here. Of that which lies beyond the sun and of the world that is unpeopled. Consider well the seed that gave you birth. You were not made to live your lives as brutes, but to be followers of worth and knowledge. Now, the two words here are virtute, translated worth, and knowledge, canosenza. Uh, Chardy translates those as uh, manhood and recognition. Canosenza uh, is something like consciousness. We, uh, but, but there are two ways of looking at this, I think. Virtute is a, it means virtue, but it means manliness. Virtute, uh, like virile. So, I think Charity's on to the to the implication of this. Here, these are old men, and he is saying we have to go and prove our manhood and establish our recognition. We have to achieve our manhood and become recognized. 
These are old men talking this way. This is not teenagers talking this way. And that's the pathos of it. I spurned my comrades with this brief address to meet the journey with such eagerness that I could hardly then have held them back, and having turned our stern toward morning, we made wings out of our oars in a wild flight and always gained upon our left-hand side. I, I'll share with you that the thing I put in the uh, literature about the Moby Dick course from Ishmael in Moby Dick, Ishmael says, uppermost was the impression that whatever swift rushing thing I stood on was not so much bound to any haven ahead as rushing from all havens astern. There's more connection between Moby Dick and this passage than that. Uh, Melville was reading this when he was writing Moby Dick, and there's a tremendous, I think particularly Canto 26, The Inferno, con tremendous connection between, uh, in many ways, Ahab and Ulysses. Okay, so now we get to what's going on. All night I now could see the other pole and all its stars. The star of ours had fallen and never rose above the plain of the ocean. Five times the light beneath the moon had been rekindled. That's five months' journey. And as many times was spent since that hard passage forced our first attempt when there before us rose a mountain. A mountain. This is a theme we've been working with over the last few weeks. To try to achieve personhood without going to the mountain. Well, here's suddenly a mountain. Dark because of distance. And it seemed to me the highest mountain I had ever seen. And we were glad, but this soon turned to sorrow for out of that new land a whirlwind rose and hammered at our ship against our, her, bra her bow. Three times it turned her round with all the waters, and at the fourth it lifted up the stern so that our prow plunged deep as pleased the other until the sea again closed over us. If you're around for the Moby Dick journey, when we get to the Moby Dick, very end of Moby Dick, we can compare it to that scene. Now, we'll come back to that mountain in a minute, but first of all, just to explore the, 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 the psyche of Ulysses. Rilke says in a poem, Sometimes a man stands up during supper and walks outdoors and keeps on walking because of a church that stands somewhere in the east. And his children say blessings on him as if he were dead. And another man who remains inside his own house stays there, inside the dishes and in the glasses, so that his children have to go far out into that world toward that same church which he forgot. I want to read that because the impulse of Ulysses is a legitimate impulse that's perverted. What Rilke is on to is the church in the East. To stay at home inside the dishes and the glasses and avoid the journey to that church is wrong. The, what was calling Ulysses was that journey to the church, but he did not respond to that calling. He was not going to a church. That's a destination. He had no destination. 
He was simply going out to have experiences. Random experiences. Patchwork experiences. And so it's a perversion of a legitimate impulse. But it's the impulse appropriate to the second half of life. To go out and search for that church in the east. That's the impulse of the second half of life. And here's a guy who's just turning it into another hero project. Ah, let's go out and show our mettle. Prove ourselves. Establish our manhood. And all that. I want to read Tennyson because uh, Tennyson got his picture of Ulysses from this part of, he, from Dante. And Tennyson picks up on it. Because Tennyson was a member of the Romantic generation, he saw it in a slightly different way, although it's hard to tell where his sympathies were with it. But I want to massage it a little bit, and I want to quote Jacques Maritain, who talks about the place that the Romantic movement has in, the, in, a, in a much larger mystery that's taking place in the Western cultural tradition. And Maritain is not an easy guy to read, uh, and it's hard enough to understand him when you've got the when you're looking at the words and when you're not looking at them, just hearing them. I'm sure it's going to be hard, but I want to read this anyway because it'll give a sense of what Tennyson was up to and where we might be as heirs of this whole kind of crazy tradition that's going along. Maritain says the older, much older generation was not interested in reflective self-awareness, and then he says. The reflex age, which roughly speaking began for mysticism at the time of St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross, came later for poetry. Now, for Maritain, the word poetry doesn't mean writing po words on page. Poetry means the whole, it's, a, it's almost a synonym for the creative imagination. So don't think he's talking just about literature. It came later for poetry. When it began at the time of Romanticism, it brought to completion the slow process of revelation of the self which had developed in the course of the modern century. This revelation of the self is a blessing inasmuch as it takes place in the genuine line of poetry. It becomes a curse when it shifts from the line of poetry and of the creative self in the fire of spiritual communication to the line of man's material individuality and of that self-centered ego, busy with self-interest and power. Then the egoism of man enters the sphere of the poetic act and feeds on this very act. And being there in an unnatural state, it grows boundless, Go, grows boundless, because it is not the mystery of the self it is treading on the mysteries of the self with nothing but ego consciousness. And then it grows boundless. It begins to sound Wagnerian strain, Nietzschean strain, and then you get the whole business of inflation. To tread on the mysteries of the self with nothing but ego consciousness. Or, another way of saying it, is to enter into the, the journey in the second half of life, which ought to be the journey to the church in the East, as though it were simply another heroic project, and then to feel all that great swelling of power and to miss its implications. 
Okay, so here I'm just going to read sections of Tennyson's Ulysses. It little profits that an idle king by this still hearth among these barren crags matched with an aged wife I meet and dole unequal laws into a savage race that hoard and sleep and feed and know not me. You see that? He's bored. And he's bored because Penelope's gotten a little older and these are just these are just landed people. They've never been anywhere. They've never thought anything. They've never had all his adventures. But the key to it is meeting and doling unequal laws into a savage race that hoard and sleep and feed and know not me. I cannot rest from travel. I will drink life to the lees. All times I have enjoyed greatly, have suffered greatly, both with those that loved me. There's no thing, it doesn't mention him loving them. It's like Dante, you see. Both of those that loved me and alone on shore and when through scudding drifts the, rain, the rainy Hyades vexed the dim sea, I am become a name. For always roaming with a hungry heart, much have I seen and known. I want to come back to this. I have become a name. That's what the first half of life is all about, all about in many ways. And it is a, it, it's necessary, but my gosh, I am become a name. Oh, boy. You finally made it. Good for you. Gil, hey, Gil, half the people in town know you. I am become a name. And, to, and now he's just going to ram that thing right on through as though that's what it's all about. I am part of all that I have met, yet all experience is an arch wherethrough gleams that untraveled world whose margin fades forever and, and ever when I move. How dull it is to pause to make an end. See, it's just receding from it. And he says to his son, he says, my son's dull enough to take care of this kingdom. I'm going off and this gray spirit yearning to desire to follow knowledge like a sinking star beyond the utmost bound of human thought. It's the Faustian quest. The last two lines are what I want to get to. He, he says to his men, we're old, but we've still got some life in us. And he speaks of their heroic hearts. And he says, made weak by time and fate, but strong in will to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. Now this is somebody, it's time, you see, at this point in Ulysses' life for him to discover that other will and to yield to it. But he says, when he feels the waning of life, he responds with this little pugnacious thing. We can do it the way we've always done it, can't we? We can do it again, can't we? I still have it in me to do it again. It's the thing that makes fools out of people. Made weak by time and fate, but strong in will to strive to seek to find and not to yield. I want to get to some other things, but go back to Maritain just for a second. Maritain said, and this is a complicated one, but I think you'll... 
in order that there should grow unceasingly conforming to its law the, the life of the creative spirit, it is necessary that the center of subjectivity should unceasingly be deepened. One would probably be led to ask oneself whether beyond a certain degree of depth this progress in spirituality can continue unless, under one form or another, a religious experience helps the soul of the poet to quit the surface level. He's not talking poet in terms of literature. Continuing at any price, refusing heroically to renounce the growth of the creative spirit, when one has nevertheless made impossible such an experience. I'm going to paraphrase what he's saying here. To persist into those deep regions while refusing to submit to a religious experience, Maritain says, wasn't this perhaps the secret of Nietzsche's disaster? To plunge ahead, but to refuse to submit to a religious experience, but instead to assert the will. Well, what I wanted to go back to is Tennyson saying, I am become a name as a, as an as a key to what's wrong here. And I'm thinking of a, li a, a simplistic little comparison between what we might call individuality and what we might call personhood or egohood and personhood. Egohood is the attempt to have a, to achieve personhood without going to the mountain. without going to the meeting place. And the difference is that when I try to achieve personhood without going to the mountain, the preoccupation of my attempt is to know my own name. And the secret preoccupation is that I'm really less interested in knowing it myself than in having it known. So that the issue is my name and the primary issue is not so much that I know it but that others know it. In the life of selfhood, one goes to the mountain and as with Moses, when he went to the mountain, the issue for him was what's God's name? At the burning bush on the mountain, Moses says, What's your name? And in the in ordinary life, we are those things get so confused together, you know. So think of Ulysses and Tennyson's Ulysses saying, "I am become a name," as something that is both the culmination of the first half of life and the slippery slide into hell if one holds on to it. Now, what the problem with Tennyson's Ulysses, and I think with Dante's Ulysses, is that he cannot abide being in the presence of those who know not me. Notice that. He's the king, see? He's, he's the monarch. 
but he can't tolerate. They don't. They know it, but they don't know his greatness. And so he is somebody who has become a name. Well, what he needs is to be corrected by a 14-year-old, uh, or at least a 14-year-old who was created by William Shakespeare. Juliet said, Romeo, O Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? Deny thy father and refuse thy name. See, the reason they couldn't fall into each other's arms is because they were members of these two families who were, had a great feud. Juliet says, What's Montague? It's not it's nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face. Oh, be some other name belonging to a man. What's in a name? Romeo, doff thy name, and for thy name, which is no part of thee, take all myself. And Romeo says, I take thee at thy word, call me but love, and I'll be new baptized henceforth. I never will be Romeo. And Juliet says, the orchard walls are high and hard to climb, and the place death, considering who thou art, if any of my kinsmen find thee here. And Romeo says, with love's light wings I do o'erperch these walls, for stony limits cannot hold out love. Now compare that to Ulysses. It's, it's still the breaking down of these barriers. But it is not done to assert his name. It's done to surrender it. It's done in the, in the presence of the beloved. It is done to get at Juliet and not to get away from Penelope. Um, we had to end on a little bit of a, some nice things about um, what would it be like to, to um, be, have wise counselors instead of uh, evil ones. The evil ones are the ones who are old enough to know better who tell us that all we have to do is get in the saddle again and stand tall and uh, do it the way we did last time when we were much younger and much more innocent and much more naive. and We can still do it and all that. Well, what would it be otherwise? Well, I wanted to, uh, two things I want to share. Uh, George Santayana, who I think was a wise elder, uh, and uh, he wrote a, a, a poem on, on turning 50 called A Minuet on Reaching the Age of 50. And it begins, I'm just going to read a few little lines from it. It's a beautiful little thing. Old age on tiptoe lays her jeweled hand lightly in mine. Come, tread a stately measure most gracious partner. Let wanton girls and boys cry over lovers' woes and broken toys. Our waking life is sweeter than their dream. See, that's the kind of person we need to be listening to, people that know that, instead of all this hot air. Where are the people who know that? He says, if we confess our sins, 
they are forgiven. We triumph if we know we failed. And now you want to know a secret? The mountain that Ulysses saw was the mountain of purgatory. We don't find that out till later. The mountain he saw was the mountain of purgatory. And when he saw it, he thought, ah, a big mountain! And it sunk him because he did not go there to repent. He went there to conquer. And you can't go there to conquer. If you go there to conquer, you go to hell. If we confess our sins, they are forgiven. We triumph if we know we failed. So half of you in the room know the next poem that I'm obliged to read is the one I've read ten times in the last two years, the Red Cloud speech in Nyhart's Cycle to West. All the young, all the young um, warriors in the tribe are whooping it up, you know. They're whooping it up, and uh, they're ready to go. They're, they're Rambo, you know, it's like a bunch of Rambos running around. Uh, and instead of, instead of having some old guy totter up there and try to be a Rambo himself and, you know, further exasperate the situation, Red Cloud walks up and it says, Nyhart says he was half woman at the last. And he walked up to the fire, to the campfires at night, he walked up to the campfire and everybody shut up. And he said, My people, you have heard, and it is good. The winter and the spring, the blooming summer, and the withering, the generations and the day and night are only moving shadows, but the light is Wakantanka, that's God. When our young feet pass across the holy mystery of grass, our eyes are darkened for the ways we go, and that is good. We see, and it is so. We hear and know it, touch, and it is true. For to be young is to believe and do as rooted things must blossom and be green. But when our eyes grow weary, having seen, and the flesh begins remembering the ground, there is a silence wiser than all sound, there is a seeing clearer than the sun, and nothing we have tried to do or done is what the Spirit meant. It's a, song, a cycle of the West, great long epic poem. The mountain that Ulysses saw and that destroyed him was the Purgatorial Mountain. And he went there as a conqueror, as an explorer, as, as someone lusting after new experience, as someone trying to act like he was in the first half of life, as someone who had... Uh, not undergone that great sea change that ought to take place, that takes place beautifully in <coughs> Santayana's poem. Old age on tiptoe lays her jeweled hand lightly in mine. Come, tread a stately measure, most gracious partner. Let 
Wanton girls and boys cry over lovers' woes and broken toys. Our waking life is sweeter than their dreams. That's the kind of person we need to be listening to, people that know that, instead of all this hot air. Where are the people who know that? He says, if we confess our sins, they are forgiven. We triumph if we know we failed. Well, last session we took a look at, or Dante took, gave us a look at uh, Ulysses. They looked at that uh, Homer in his rendition of uh, the... Greek version of Ulysses, namely Odysseus, a look at Ulysses that Homer does not provide, namely the death of Ulysses, and Dante regarded him as a uh, as a crafty and wily and and uh, in the final analysis evil counselor, and he and he uh, creates a mythic image of Ulysses, which is the image of the evil counselor, but one that's very appropriate to the whole religious struggle that Dante is undergoing and trying to let us in on, namely a transition from uh, a life uh, which we've referred to here as the life of ego formation uh, to another kind of a life uh, and uh, the requisite conversion somewhere in, in midlife. And even the midlife thing is just a metaphor for what this is. It can be happening uh, on two levels all the time. But in any case, he gives us a, a sense of Ulysses as the evil counselor who encourages his his old men friends, and he himself is an old man, to uh, go ahead and try to do it one more time the way they'd always done it. In, Can- in Canto 27, uh, we get the second of the evil counselors, and uh, the story is very similar. It doesn't quite have the pathos that the... Ulysses, the death of Ulysses has, uh, but it has, if we pause and ruminate over it a little bit, uh, as much to offer us in terms of what, uh, in terms of the failure of this particular life. The the sinner that Dante interviews in Canto 27 is Guido da Montefeltro, who uh, was a proud and famous and uh, highly regarded uh, politician, soldier, uh, counselor to uh, the great and the mighty. But as Dante uh, uh, comments on the nature of this canto where the evil counselors are being, or this, uh, this circle in hell where the evil counselors are being punished, he provides at the beginning a simile, as he often does, uh, and it, it is this, and then I'll we'll, uh, explore it a little bit. Even as the Sicilian bull that first had bellowed with the cry, and this was just, of him who shaped it with his instruments, would always bellow with its victim's voice, so that although that bull was only brass, it seemed as if it were pierced through by pain. The simile is a Sicilian tyrant who... Uh, uh, who uh, Got his version of Daedalus, some uh, some uh, uh, some craftsman, 
uh, to, to create this uh, brass bull, and the victims of this tyrant's uh, uh, contempt, his political enemies and so on, were placed in the brass bull, and then it was heated until the, the victim was, was baked to death. And this is grim stuff, right? Well, uh, and the voice of the tortured victim would scream out, and there was a cavity in the mouth of the bull, and this, this would echo out. And uh, I, one, one assumes uh, 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 disincline other members of the kingdom to, uh, to uh, go contrary to the tyrant's will. Um, so Dante uses this little image, and then he goes on and he says, So were the helpless words that, from the first, had found no path or exit from the flame, transformed into the language of the fire. Just to review, he's in a place the evil counselors are punished. The evil counselors are those who have, who have, violate, who have sinned against the Holy Spirit in a way. They have violated uh, the, the, the paraclete of the Holy Spirit is the counselor, the divine counselor. And they have, they have used that office of counseling. Uh, they, in a sense, have perverted that charisma. They have used that office, which ought to belong to someone who is above the fray, uh, to counsel shrewd maneuvers for those who are still in the thick of the fray, instead of, instead of using that office of counseling for something uh, loftier. And so they are trapped in these tongues of fire, these sort of Pentecostal images or the images of the Holy Spirit have become uh, eternal and infernal traps for these people. According to the way hell works, one is punished by the sin, not for the sin. And so they have become trapped in their own, in their own uh, devices. So let's just leave it that way. Maybe we'll come back and reflect on it later. So he begins to look around and he, uh, this sinner, Guido, comes up to him from Ramonia, and he asked Dante about his home region, Ramonia, and he says, is there war or peace there? And Dante says, Ramonia is not now and never was quite free of war inside its tyrant's hearts. But when I left her, none had broken out. I want to just pause and reflect on this passage a little bit before we get into Guido's, uh, the story of his uh, fateful uh, sin. He says, the war is in, there is a war inside the tyrant's heart, but it hasn't broken out yet. Uh, Simon Weil, one of the most, I think, piercing insights of hers is that um, the false god is the one who turns suffering into violence. And the true God is the one who turns violence into suffering. And here we have a, a picture of this thing called a tyrant's heart. Let's think of it generically as a, as a thing, a tyrant's heart. And the tyrant's heart has in it the war. And what it does is that, according to Dante, Dante knows already, it hasn't broken out yet, but the clear implication of his line is that it's just a matter of time. The nature of a tyrant's heart is that it will break out. It is now in the tyrant's heart, but it will come out. So I was wondering if we might think of the tyrant's heart symbolically as an entropic factory for turning the raw material of consciousness into sociodrama.
The raw material of, material of consciousness is that tension. Uh, we become attentive. That is to say, we become conscious only in the presence of that tension. That is the raw material of consciousness. And uh, for whatever quirky reason, it has momentarily gotten inside the tyrant's heart. And then the question is, will he keep it there and turn it into consciousness? Or will it break out and turn into sociodrama? And Dante knows that it's just going to break out. The tyrant's heart is, I say entropic because it's, it, if we think of evolution as the attempt on the part of the cosmos to become conscious, then here is the stuff of consciousness and it is going to be turned back into sociodrama. And this, that turning it back into sociodrama is entropic. Uh, it got inside there for a minute, but it's going to come back out. So the entropic factory for turning the raw material of consciousness back into sociodrama, or to put it this way, it's the, play, the tyrant's heart is the place where the tension gets converted back into contention. And the one who, has, who is a party to that perversion uh, becomes, uh, loses consciousness, loses the opportunity to be attentive, to be awake, and so becomes part of some mindless uh, uh, warring of the, of the factions instead of, instead of having that thing happen inside. And just to go to explore a little further, what happens in Canto 27, I think, uh, reason that in, if it has any chance of being as, as, uh, as poignant as the Ulysses story, it is because it is of a conversion that failed to fully con uh, finally convert. So Guido is one who tried uh, to, be, to undergo a conversion and he failed. But the conversion, if it works, might be thought of as moving from a world of contraries into a world of paradoxes. Uh, you know, Jung makes that comment about uh, if you are in, if you are mentally or emotionally unable to live in a paradoxical world, your religious life simply has a floor to it. It's not going to go any deeper than that. If you cannot live in a world that is paradoxical, you, are, you, you simply have, have uh, ruled out some of the deeper regions of human experience. Uh, so the conversion would be to move from a world of contraries into a world of paradoxes. And this, of course, is a conversion that failed. I'm interested also in the, uh, in the sense that it is the war is inside the tyrant's heart, and it's just a matter of time until it breaks out again. Um, the breaking, the tension is in here, the breaking out of the tyrant's heart might be thought of, you, you probably think I'm being facile here, maybe I am, but I, I think there's something here for us. It might be thought of the breaking out of these tensions, out of the tyrant's heart back into the sociodrama, might be thought of as the way of having a broken heart without knowing it. It breaks out of the tyrant's heart and puts the tyrant into some contest externally. 
And Dante, in the La Vita Nuova, as you remember when we talked about it, speaks of the new consciousness, or intelligenza nuova, the new consciousness, which comes from a broken heart, or comes from a weeping love, or suffering love. So the question, once these tensions have gotten in somehow, one way or another, have been called back into the human heart, uh, then the question is, is that going to be the place for the new consciousness, or going to be a tyrant's heart, and simply erupt and break back out into the sociodrama? In either case, there is a broken heart. But the tyrant never knows his heart's been broken. His heart breaks out. And the kind of new consciousness Dante's talking about requires that the heart break open. So Dante parlays a little bit with Guido, and then he he doesn't know who he is at that point. And then Dante says, tell me who you are. And Guido says, and we'll come back to these lines, he says, if I thought my, re- my reply were meant for one who ever could return into the world, this flame would stir no more. And yet since none, if what I hear is true, ever returned alive from this abyss, then without fear of facing infamy, I answer you. Earlier in hell, uh, the sinners most of them, wanted to be remembered. From here on in hell, or from shortly before here on in hell, uh, most of the sinners do not want to be remembered. Their sins are sufficiently uh, heinous that they want simply to be forgotten or to have their their uh, what memory there is of them remain as it is as opposed to the real truth of their existence. Uh, but in any case, he, he says that, and then he goes on to describe his situation. So this is... Guido's version uh, of that story of Ulysses' demise. I was, of man, I was a man of arms, then wore the cord. Let's just take that. Well, I was a man of arms, then wore the cord, believing that so girt I made amends. Uh, and we'll go on with that story. But just to, what Dante does is he sets two things uh, in juxtaposition here. Arms, he was a soldier, he was a contender. Arms, are when those one is engaged in that sociodrama out there, he was involved in that contention. And then he says, then I wore the cord. This is the Franciscan. Uh, so he took Franciscan vows and put on the cord. And the whole Franciscan cosmos is that that is, that that is, it is uh, brother, son, and sister moon. The Franciscan cosmos is that uh, a a more paradoxical world, and a world in which those, in, in which the contention becomes attention. Uh, one leaves behind the contention and becomes attentive. In that way, in which Fran- Saint Francis is uh, so symbolic. And so he tries to move from the world of arms to the world of this Franciscan cord. Believing that so girt I made amends, 
even the word amends has a little thing there of bringing together two things that need to be mended. So then he goes on to say, now so what we're talking about now is a is this essential transition from the from uh, the outer contention to the paradoxical world. Believing that so good I made amends, and surely what I thought would have been true, had not the highest priest, may he be damned, made me fall back into my former sins. And the highest priest, of course, is Pope Boniface VIII, whom Dante loathed. And uh, he says, may he be damned. We already found out in the earlier canto he is damned. He's still alive in Dante's writing, but he's going to be damned. And so then Guido explains what happens. And he, so he says, My deeds were not those of the lion, but those of the fox. We'll just pause and meditate on this as we go through. Uh, that is to say, he was a man of arms, but he was increasingly the, the grievous sins of the deep, deepest part of hell are the sins of the elite, the sins of the of the intellectuals. These are white-collar sins in the fir- in the, of the first order, you see. Um, and his deeds were not those of the lion. The lion's out there on the front lines, you see. Uh, his were the deeds of the fox. He was very shrewd, uh, like Ulysses. He's a very shrewd, and and uh, it's, a, it's a mental agility that he's chiefly re- well-regarded for. Uh, and it may be, if we think of uh, going from this uh, from this world of arms to the world of the Franciscan court, it, if we think of that as going from uh, the world of tooth and claw to the world of the lion lying down with the lamb, it may be easier to do that if you're a lion than if you're a fox. A fox, like the wolf, has a way of putting on sheep's clothing. It's like putting the cord around, changing your habit or your outfit. Well, anyway, uh, it's an interesting allusion, and we'll come back to it. And he says, then he says, the wiles and secret ways, I knew them all. When he says, I knew them all, there is a sense that Guido is both proud and forlorn. I knew them all. And he's proud of having known them all, but he also realizes that it was that intimate acquaintance with them all that condemned him to hell because he didn't leave it behind when he took the cord. So then he goes on to say, but when I saw myself, excuse me, but when I saw myself come to that part of life when it is fitting for all men to lower sails and gather in their ropes, what once had been my joy was now dejection. In case, like Ulysses, we have exactly the same problem, namely this problem of the latter part of life. It was now time to move beyond that into the deeper question. And he knew it. It was time to lower his sails and gather in his rope. Repenting and confessing, I became a friar, a Franciscan. And poor me, that may be a little pun there, poor me. The Franciscans were poor and now he's he became, he became poor me, all right. Um, it would have helped. He says, alas, poor me, it would have helped 
the prince of the new Pharisees, who then was waging war so near the Lateran, and not against the Jews or Saracens, for every enemy of his was Christian. And then he goes on to explain, and uh, we'll go on to that. He explains how uh, how Boniface VIII uh, tricked him or talked him into advising him, giving him some of this foxy advice that he was so famous for, uh, so that he could win this particular contest, that this particular uh, uh, war that he was waging. And we'll go into that in a second. But what is interesting here is, uh, first of all, Dante calls, uh, calls Boniface VIII the highest priest. And uh, as you know, in, in, in the Gospels, the high priest is, is, uh, is the representative of the, of the uh, unmoving establishment that will not re- accept uh, Christ. Uh, and here he's called the Prince of the New Pharisees, likewise, those stubbornly resisting um, the Christian message. And that's the Pope himself here. Waging more war so near the latter, and that's the Pope's uh, palace, not against, now we can forget here and elsewhere in these cantos, uh, I think, uh, forget, you know, Dante's, the cosmos Dante's living in, where the Jews and Saracens, this has to do with the Middle East and the whole meaning of the Crusades, to somehow save the Holy Land from the infidel. But this war is not to save the Holy Land from the infidel, and we might think of that metaphorically. That would be a legitimate war, to save the Holy Land from the infidel, perhaps. This is not that. This is a war against fellow Christians. Uh, as though even... One, one could say, even if one has taken on not only the cord but the papal mantle and has not left that contentious world behind, sooner or later one will be fighting the very Christianity that one has espoused by taking on whatever it is, the cord or the mantle. It is the nature of Christianity that we are brothers and sisters uh, in Christ, everybody, so that if one takes on the mantle or the cord and has not developed that sensibility, sooner or later it's going to be a Christian civil war. Um, uh, Not to be too topical or contentious, I'm putting a spin on contention here today, I shouldn't try to be contentious, but uh, you may notice how uh, some people who are are, uh, uh, zealously establish their motives as Christian ones uh, launch crusades to to uh, rid uh, uh, Central or Latin America of godless communism and end up fighting uh, some of the most uh, courageous and uh, and, and uh, noble uh, Christians on the planet. Uh, so this is in the nature of this thing. If if that contentious consciousness is smuggled in under the mantle or the cord, uh, nothing has changed. It's still going to be a civil war. Well, that was the nature of the thing. So the Pope uh, tries to get Guido to uh, counsel him. He, uh, He asked me to give counsel. I was silent. His words had seemed to me delirious. And then he said, Your heart must not mistrust. I now absolve you in advance. 
You see, the Pope has this power, uh, according to a quaint uh, 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 Roman Catholic uh, interpretation of things, to um, absolve one of sins, and uh, he decides to. Uh, there's this little catch in there. You're supposed to have a firm purpose of amendment. Uh, well, it's hard to have that and absolve somebody uh, before the act. Uh, so that was the little trick. Uh, but he, since it was the Pope talking, he says, uh, Guido says, since said to the Pope, since you cleanse me of the sin that I must that I must now fall into, Father, no. And he gives him this advice: long promises and brief fulfillments. That is, tell them what they want to hear and do what you have to. Um, and the story immediately changes to the moment of death. This is the medieval little. Uh, <coughs> tragic comedy uh, play at the end of death where the where it's, it's also in Faust you know where the where there's who's going to get the soul that's been bartered away uh, then Francis came as soon as I was dead for me but one of the black cherubim told him hold on wait a minute that's my soul and they this is the one of those little stories and the black cherubim says one can't absolve a man who's not repented and no one can repent and will at once. Keep that tucked in the back of your mind. No one can repent and will at once. <coughs> the law of contradiction won't allow it. Perhaps you did not think I was a logician. In other words, <laughs> um, the, uh, the devil's perfectly capable of playing the, those little subtle intellectual games. Um, and so he lost his soul. The story is a story of a conversion that failed, uh, a conversion that turned out not to be a conversion. Now, in our time, there's, I think there are plenty of instances, if we understand it symbolically enough, plenty of instances of something very parallel, parallel to Guido's case. It is, and we'll talk about this more when we get into Canto 28, it is very, the, the melodrama of the world of contention is so incredibly interesting and engaging that it is very hard to move beyond it. And uh, taking the chord... Uh, in Guido's case, simply didn't work. He was, by the way, one who was known for his for his uh, subtlety and guile and sophistication and foxiness and all that. And it's very hard to leave behind whatever one's known for uh, when it's time to become something else. But we have an even more subtle version of that, which I would like to now review. 